Well, good morning, Mission View. My name is Josh Chandler. I'm an elder here, and I have the privilege of uh, sharing the message with you this morning. I, uh, I did want to say, well, two things. One, Pastor Matt is coming back. Um, so he was on vacation for a couple of weeks. And then when we started the Daniel series, I actually asked him uh, if I could, could teach on this chapter. So he's had a nice uh, three-week break to, to rest and rejuvenate. Um, and uh, as a reward for that, he's now sick. Um, but so pray for, pray for him this morning as well. He had intended on being here, but, uh, but, but could not, wanted to, to get some rest in. But actually, the biggest thing I wanted to say, I wanted to apologize on behalf of Pat Culpepper and I to anybody who's had to stand behind me in church. Because this morning, I sat down in my seat, and I think the tallest member of our congregation was right in front of me. And uh, Zach, I'm, I know I... I know how people feel now, so I apologize for anybody that stands behind me. And Zach, no problem. It, I mean, it's like a perfect lesson for me. But hey, we've got a, an amazing chapter of Scripture before us this morning, which is, um, which is actually why I wanted to teach this morning. Um, if you were to take a poll of all of the people you respect uh, in Christianity, mentors, pastors, best friends, and you were to ask them to list of all the, 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 the chapters in Scripture, their favorite list of biblical chapters on prayer, and one list, and then on the second list, list all of your favorite chapters on biblical prophecy. And then you compared those two lists, I could almost guarantee you that the chapter that we're at today would be in the top five of both of those lists. So we have got our hands full. Um, we've been going through a series called uh, Thriving in a Corrupt Culture. Uh, and I believe that God has led us here to Daniel um, as a church for instructions on how it is we're to live in this culture around us. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, um, but the Christian worldview is no longer the prevalent worldview in our society. Um, I think we're seeing that in many, many ways, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to Randy because he shot me a, a Barna survey this week, just out on June 8th, so we can take a look at this. Barna does a great job periodically of, of putting surveys out to kind of poll across the United States on just general Christian topics. Where, does, where is Christianity in the world today? They typically do it in 10-year increments, so they ask the same questions 10 years apart, and then you can kind of track where our culture is going. Um, I mean, this one is, is pretty stark. For the first time ever, less than half of respondents say that they hold to a Christian worldview. Um, and less than half of respondents now believe that the Bible is the accurate word of God. So it's really no wonder that we're having discussions across our culture on whether or not God truly created us as male and female, or, you know, what is God's design for sexuality and relationship and sexual relationships and marriage? Um, when you have more than half of the country admitting that they, they don't believe the Word of God, you know, it's, 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 we shouldn't be caught off guard when the culture around us becomes antithetical to this biblical worldview that we hold so dear. And we shouldn't be surprised that we as a church now have to be vigilant about political movements and legislation across the country that may threaten to classify biblical truths as hate speech. And as much as we could this morning dwell on all of those things, I'd rather focus on God's Word because it is rich and full for us this morning. Um, and, and that is where we will find our encouragement, as we'll see Daniel does um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you, I'm hoping you brought your thinking caps, because this one is going to be, I'm, gonna, I'm a lot, if you haven't noticed, I'm not like Matt. I'm a little bit more heady. Um, I'm a CPA, so that tells you all you need to know. I'm one of those boring engineer accounting types. Sorry, Todd. 
Um, and so this is going to be a little bit more like a college class. So I need your, your thinking caps on because we're really going to dig in and we're going to be jumping back and forth in your Bibles. So I'm going to be testing your knowledge. Of course, it's not really a test anymore because you can just type in on your cell phone, you know, jump back and forth. But let's, uh, let's ask God's blessing on this time this morning first. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you for uh, your leading on this body and that... Uh, even now, Father, that we, as we open up um, your word in Daniel, Father, that we find timely instruction for the times that we're living in. So, Father, uh, keep us attentive to your word, Father. Let us hear what it is you want us to hear. And then I pray, Father, that as we walk out of this place today, uh, that we would apply those learnings uh, to, to the mission, Father, that you've given each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, like us, Daniel living in Babylon in a crazy culture, far removed from his Jewish customs and traditions in Jerusalem. Um, we're going to start chapter 9, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made over the, over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Named these seven, namely 70 years. So here's Daniel, 70 years removed from his homeland, from everything he knew in adolescence, all the customs, um, keeping the Levitical law, 70 years removed, totally different, custom, I mean, totally different customs in place, and what's he doing? He's still in God's Word. Um, now in his case, it's an old scroll of Jeremiah, um, but he's not letting the culture around him dictate who God says he is. And so here he is, foreign land, studying the word. And I, I, I'll ask you, have, you, have you ever heard the term garbage in, garbage out? It's a, uh, a programming term by nature, and it basically means you put bad code into a computer program or a game or something, what you're going to get on the other side is a really bad experience. I will venture to say that our lives in today's culture are much the same. Garbage in, garbage in, whether that's social media, television, the social clique of friends that we hang out with, the more that we hear those things, the more that today's culture is going to sound and look like something we're familiar with and something that we should be adhering to than God's word and the Christian worldview. Um, we saw in, in, in chapter one, um, you know, that, that's not what Daniel did. Chapter one, remember, he got brought into Babylon. They wanted them to immediately assume the customs, eat the food, study the words. And Daniel very respectfully said, hey, no, I'd like to continue to serve my God, and I'll prove to you that I'm going to be a great citizen by keeping my customs as opposed to yours, right? And then chapter 6, uh, we learned that he was still faithfully praying three times a day, even though it got him thrown into a lion's den. And now here he is in his mid-80s, 70 years removed from Jerusalem and the temple, in captivity, and he's still faithfully reading God's Word. And what does he find? And I think this is really relevant for us, because I don't know about how many of, how many of you have had this experience, but in the midst of really hard trials, I have often found, not knowing what to do, I open God's Word, and then what do I have right in front of me? Really relevant instruction for the situation I'm in. And I think Daniel finds the same. And so, I want you to, to flip to Jeremiah, and while you're doing that, I'm going to ask that you keep a thumb in Genesis and Leviticus, because we're going to go on a tour of Scripture today. Um, 
We're going to go back in Jeremiah. So it said that he was reading in the books of, of Jeremiah, or the scrolls of Jeremiah, and he had found that there were 70 years of captivity. So I want to look back at what Daniel was looking at. So if you go Jeremiah chapter 25, I used to love hearing the turning of pages. I hear a little bit, but I know everybody's just clicking away on their phones now. Um, 25 chapter, sorry, Jeremiah 25 verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, keep that in mind, you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. No, wait, i got to stop. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant? This is the same Nebuchadnezzar that threw people in lion's dens and threw them into furnaces. So just a quick note, God will and can use anybody to accomplish his will. So if you're disappointed about the politicians around you or the leaders around you, just realize God used Nebuchadnezzar and called him my servant, using Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his will. All right, continuing. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Daniel's realizing, wait a second, this isn't an accident. This was God's design. He told prophets from age of old that I would be sitting here in Babylon, and oh, I'm looking at my clock, and I'm realizing, hey, these 70 years are, are almost up. But I, I want to look back into the very beginning of that. It says, God says, because you have not obeyed my words, okay? What, what is God talking about? Well, now we're going to flip back to Leviticus. We're going to go back to the law. So I'm going to give you a second. Um, Leviticus 25, and then we're going to flip to 26. So Leviticus 25, verse 2. This was part of the Mosaic law. And this is uh, the Lord speaking to Moses, giving the people of Israel his law. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall, show, you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath, a solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of it of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine it shall be a year of solemn rest for the land now flip with me down to leviticus 26 i'm going to hit verse 14 and then go down to verse 34 which is really the punishment that god is laying out for the nation of israel should they choose not to obey this command so leviticus 26 verse 14 but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments drop down to 34 then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. And the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So here we are. So the nation of Israel, God had given them a command to let their land lie fallow every seven years and give it a Sabbath. I think for those of you that are farmers out there, you can appreciate it. It does make sense sometimes to let the land life fallow and, and, and rejuvenate and, and refresh. Um, so they, they didn't obey that. And so here they are living out the consequence of, of not following what God had given them. So they are in the land of Babylon, a direct consequence 
to not following the law. Daniel realizes this. He knows this. And again, keeping a look at his calendar, he's realizing, hey, we're, we're coming up to the end of that. Now, Daniel may have also been reading in Jeremiah 29, which I want to flip back to. I promise we'll slow down in a bit. 29, you guys are going to be familiar with this. Um, 29.10, it says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then verse 11, which we're probably all familiar with, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. So most of us are familiar with verse 11, right? We use it a lot of times to encourage one another. Here in its original context, God is actually using it uh, as encouragement for the nation of Israel, basically saying, hey, you're going to serve 70 years, but I'm, I haven't forgotten you. I'm coming back for you. It's two things, right? Um, he says, I will f- fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So he's promising to bring them back to the land. And then lastly, saying, I'm going to give you a future and a hope. So Daniel, undoubtedly at this point, was thinking a lot about some of the covenants and promises that God had made. And I think as we look at this, as we think about prophecy, I think two of the most important covenants that God had made, I wanted to take a quick look at. So this is when we're going to flip back to Genesis. Two of the important covenants that God made, we call today the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Now, we are not going to have time because Kelly will be screaming at me if I try to get into all of those. I always give her a hard time. She really never screams. Um, we're not going to have time to really dig in, but I wanted to give you a sense for what is the Abrahamic covenant, and Joe's laughing because you probably got screamed at, didn't you, um, and the Davidic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant has its roots in Genesis. So this is God speaking to Abram, making a ton of promises to Abram about the future of Abram, who will be Abraham and the, and, and the nation of Israel. Um, I'm going to be in 12, Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3. And this is God saying to Abram, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the initial covenant that God made with Abram. And as you read through the book of Genesis, you're going to see that God amends this and adds to this list of promises a bunch of times. I think one relevant for this morning um, is going to be in Genesis 17, 8. So I'm going to flip there. And it says, And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for, get this, an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God has promised to the nation of Israel an everlasting possession of Canaan. Now, if you look at history and even today, the nation of Israel is back in Israel, but not to the same borders that God originally laid out as the promised land. So while they have been in the nation of Israel over the course of history, many times it has been under a foreign ruler or not fully having possession of the land that God had promised them. Um, So that, that fulfillment is still outstanding and not yet fulfilled, literally, which we'll talk about. Secondly, the Davidic covenant, we're going to have to, to, to flip to 2 Samuel, and then I promise we'll spend almost the rest of the time in Daniel. It drives my wife crazy sometimes. She calls it Bible flipping, like it's hard to focus, right? But this is good. It's, it's really good foundation for the prophecy that we're going to be looking at. So the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 through 16. 
And this is now the prophet Nathan, God speaking to the prophet Nathan, and, and Nathan, telling Nathan, this is what I need you to go tell David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise, you, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And this is the key part, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God promising to the nation of Israel that David's throne would be established forever. Now, again, we could dive into this for six Sundays, um, but suffice it to say, the nation of, of Israel has not obtained or reobtained the king's throne, David's throne in Israel. Um, you know, we have looked, and a lot of um, Bible interpreters will spiritualize Christ as having come, come down and taken the throne spiritually. Uh, but I think, as we're going to talk about, when you look at a literal interpretation of, of, of prophecy, we, we have not seen that fulfilled. So here's Daniel again. So let's flip back with Daniel, reading the books of Jeremiah, getting encouraged because it's the end of 70 years. He's obviously got a lot of these things on his mind, thinking back to what got them there, thinking about where we are right now. and Okay, what is God going to do now? I'm at the end of these 70 years. God, what do you have for us next? Um, and then what do you think he does? I know what I'd do. I'd go grab a shovel, a hammer, a spear, and I'd be like, let's go. We're going to build it. Let's do it right now, God. That's not, that's not what he does. Um, he does what we so often fail to do first, which is he hits his knees. And that's our first point today. And that is thriving in a corrupt culture requires penitent prayer. So if you look at this, this is going to be a lot of verses and, and it's awesome. Have you guys ever heard of the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, when you're thinking about prayer? It's a great way. I know for me sometimes, I know I need to pray. I have to pray. I finally get myself settled down and sat down to pray. And then I'm like, okay, what do you want me to pray for, God? Um, okay, I love my wife, my kids. What, what am I going to pray for? So this is a good acronym to remember, A-C-T-S. A stands for adoration. I should have had this on the overhead. I don't. I'm sorry. So A stands for adoration. C stands for confession. The T stands for thanksgiving, and the S stands for supplication or petition. So these are all things and ways that we can pray to God. And as we start to read through this prayer of Daniel, um, which I will call the great prayer, it is one of the great prayers in the Old Testament, look for each of these things, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So here we are, back in, Jan, uh, back in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 3. It says, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I'm going to stop there. Daniel didn't just haphazardly run into prayer, which is fine. It's awesome. I think breath prayers we talk about a lot. In this case, Daniel was dead serious. Fasting, sackcloth, ash. It's all signs of humility. He prepared his heart, laid down before the Lord, and laid it out. So back four, I prayed to the Lord my God, and made confession, there's one of the acts, I made confession saying to the Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commands and rules. 
we have listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something unique about Daniel. Um, the Bible doesn't give, it doesn't, doesn't give us any dirt on him, right? I mean, if, if, if you think about it, Abraham had the, the Hagar incident. Moses, you know, struck the rock and got mad and got kicked out of Canaan for a while. David committed adultery and murder. We got nothing on Daniel. But, but what is he saying here? What's the pronoun he's using here? We. We. Daniel knew in his heart that he did not live up to the standard of God and, and, and therefore came to God humbly. Even though of all the people we read, up, read about in the Bible, we, we've got no dirt on Daniel. No sin, nothing that, that, that suggests that he ever did anything outside of God's plan. He is humbly becoming before God right now and saying, we, this is us, all of us. He knows in his heart and he places himself with his people and their sin against God. Continuing in verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like, as what, like, has, like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, again, Daniel recognizing, hey, God, you said this. You gave it to us in your law. As is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. He's saying, God, you gave us your truth. I ha you had it right there in the law of Moses. We disregarded it. And we, right now, are enduring your discipline because of that. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Christian, do you, do you want... God's ear in prayer. You know, God refers to himself in Jeremiah as a spring of, of living water. I had a, a former pastor um, tell me once, we do such a good job of taking all of our sin and baggage and stuff and just shoving it down into that spring until we can't even find a drop of water. The key is confession. And that's where Daniel's at right now. He is laying all of the sin of Israel, all of their frailties and failures at the throne of God. And I'll tell you, what you will find is once you rid yourself of that sin and baggage, that fountain will open up and you will start to experience and see those blessings. But now in verse 16, Daniel turns from confession to supplication or petition. 
So Daniel 9, 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. So Daniel's saying, not for my sake, God, but for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your own name. Now Daniel's prayer here was in direct response to his study in God's Word. You know, the, the last time I taught from this pulpit, it was on Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, that passage of Scripture contains uh, Jesus's ask, seek, and knock instructions around prayer. And at that time, we went through kind of five requirements for prayer. And the fifth one was that we must ask according to God's will. You know, there is no clearer way to understand God's will than to read His Word and then to pray accordingly with what you have found in God's Word. One of the things I had hoped to do this morning, but time won't allow, was I wanted to go back through this prayer and use its form and Daniel's approach to prayer for us to pray for our nation and where we're at today. Um, but I'm going to give you that as homework, because um, I, I think what you're going to find is when you pray through Scripture, you're going to see and hear how God has moved in history and how God wants us to move as we go out and go forward. So that's your homework assignment. I want you to take this prayer this week as you go home. See, I told you it was going to be like a college lecture. Um, I want you to think about the ACTS acronym, and as you go through the prayer, kind of note all the, the areas in which Daniel adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You'll see all of those elements of prayer in there. I think it's a great encouragement and instruction for us on how we should pray. But now, now we get to move from what I'm calling the great prayer to the great prophecy. And uh, I think in order to really do this, I want to kind of step back, take a 30,000-foot look at prophecy, talk about what it means to study prophecy, give you some general guidelines, and then we'll dig into the passage itself. So the first one I want to give you is, is why, why study prophecy? prophecy. I think so often when I'm, I'm talking uh, to believers, they just look at it and they say, man, that stuff is so confusing. Have you ever read Revelation? Like, are you kidding me? Uh, who, we can't understand that. And I agree. It can be a little bit daunting, okay? Um, but I'm going to remind you of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. Some of you remember this. He says, some scripture except prophecy is breathed out by God. No, that's not what he says. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All Scripture. So last I checked, the, the, the prophecy that we're reading today is part of Scripture. God has given it to us for a reason. I agree that it can be daunting, but it's profitable. So let's not ignore it. Um, secondly, I want to just look at some general rules for 
studying prophecy. So when you come to prophecy in the Bible, what, what are some general rules to use when looking at it? And I, and I think this one is, is not just prophecy, but really hermeneutics in general. Studying the Bible, how do you interpret Scripture? And this is my number one rule. Are you ready? When the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. When the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. So if you're reading Scripture and what God says in His Word, and you can picture that happening literally, either past, present, future, just take it as God's Word. I don't know, if, if, if you study prophecy, you know, Jesus was prophesied to be born where? Anybody? Bethlehem? Where was Jesus born? Literal fulfillment, right? So I think we could, we could go through a hundred examples like that. And, and I, you know, for those of you who like to be contrarian, I agree that there are some out there that are questionable. But generally speaking, my wife's laughing, contrarian. She was like, oh, that's me. Um, see, he got me off. Um, literal fulfillment. Uh, so prophecy, God has fulfilled it literally in the past. Going forward, we can expect him to fulfill it literally. Number two, when studying prophecy, you gotta, we got to understand that God looks at the nation of Israel, the Gentile nations, and the church separately. And I think so often confusion in prophecy comes when we kind of just take all of those bodies, groups of people, kind of put them into one, and then we can get confused about, okay, what's God talking about? Who's he talking about? How is this going to be fulfilled? And I think we'll see that specifically in the passage that we've got later. Um, number three, an understanding of prophecy requires a complete look at the whole counsel of God. Now, one of the things I love, and I'm not going to steal this now because it's one of my concluding points, is God doesn't give us a complete picture in any one place. And actually, if you take the entirety of Scripture, I, I will say it's like looking in a mirror dimly, right? Doesn't the Scripture say something about that? We see through a mirror dimly now, but then we will, we will see him as like face-to-face. -face. It'll be clear. And, and I think that, and you know, back to this point, any one piece of, of, of prophecy in Scripture is, is going to give us a small tidbit. I think as we take and look at corresponding, it becomes a little bit clearer, but even then it's still a mirror dimly. So again, look at the whole counsel of God. And then lastly, um, and this is going to be the most important one. I, I think I said that already, so I'm like a sports cancer, a sports, cast, sports caster. Every play is the best play you've ever seen. This is the, the really important one. Okay, when dealing with prophecy, we've got to differentiate the spine issues from the rib issues. Now, you've heard us say that before. What, what does that mean? That means when you look at doctrine in Christianity, there's some things that are really, really important that we will not waver on. You know, we like to say that that is a hill we will die on, right? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The only way to heaven is through his sacrifice on the cross. Those are spine issues. There are other issues to which we don't hold so tightly. We call those spine issues. Um, and here's what I'll say. Really great, awesome, Bible-believing friends, pastors, preachers, teachers, will differ on their interpretation of some of prophecy. And that's okay. That's okay. I know we are so trained to get our backs up against a wall and just fight everything in front of us. And it's so much easier to do that. I get it. But just realize, we can't. there's a lot of prophecy that we can't be dogmatic about. But I will say, the one... So, okay, great, Josh. Spine and rib issues. So what's the spine issue? So I'll tell you, when we're talking about prophecy, the one spine issue is that Jesus Christ is coming back. The second coming is promised. He is coming in power and glory. 
to reign over his church, to judge. That is the spine issue. Now, when we start talking about the how, the when, how exactly is this going to play out, that, that becomes, those things become the, the, the spine issue, or the rib issues, sorry. All right. So I wanted to jump in lastly and just say, okay, even still, as a body, you know, we, we've, doctrinally, we've had to say, okay, well, what do we believe? Where do we stand? And I can't remember if this is going to be on the overhead or not, but if you look at our statement of faith for Mission View, which you can find on the website in the About Us piece, uh, we have a, a small clause in there about things to come. And so as a body, the elders, we've looked at, and what I'll say, and I'll, I'll say this again and again, the preponderance of evidence. Any lawyers out there? So this is like the more likely than not standard. This is not the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. When we look at the preponderance of evidence, um, what we have landed on is this, and I'll read it to you. It says, we believe in the pre-tribulational and premillennial coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for his redeemed ones to establish his kingdom on earth and reign for a thousand years. Now, there's some additional um, scriptures in your bulletin this morning. So if you're really inclined when you're doing your homework and then you want to look into uh, prophecy a little bit more, there's some great verses there that support this. But I'll hit a couple of these. Pre-tribulational, it means that we believe in a rapture and we believe the rapture is going to happen at the front end of the tribulation. Premillennial, now there's three major schools of thought with respect to the second coming. Um, what we believe, premillennial, we believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom, and we believe that Jesus' second coming will come at the beginning of that millennium, so premillennial. I'll just throw out really quick two other schools of thought. Amillennial, which you'll find the Catholic Church, for example, very, very, fairly widely held, um, basically does not believe in a literal millennial kingdom. They spiritualize a lot of the promises of, of a millennial kingdom and say that Christ reigning in our hearts has become that kingdom. So it's a, it's a non-literal interpretation. So you can see I'm already a little bit biased. Um, but they spiritualize a lot of that. They do believe in a second coming that will ultimately happen at some point in the future, but no millennial kingdom. And then thirdly, I'll highlight post-millennial, which was really big, I'll say early 1900s, kind of went away a little bit, and we're seeing kind of a resurgence of this with Hillsong, uh, Bethel Church, a lot of these. And, and the general premise there is that basically the gospel will win out, that eventually we will influence, as, as Christ believers on church, we will impact enough believers that Christianity will become the prevalent religion and worldview across the nation, and that will rein in kind of a millennial time period of, of, of greatness, and then Christ will come. Um, in your bulletins today, there is, I hope your eyesight is really good. If it's not, Dr. Steve Hansen um, is a member of our body, and I didn't even get paid for that plug. Um, but you can pay me if you want to, Steve. Dinner, pool. Um, so there's a great, great chart in here. I'm a visual learner myself. Um, this chart really depicts graphically what we believe about end times prophecy. All right, I've talked enough about that. Now we're going to really dig into the heady stuff. So that, that moves us, man, I, I think I ran right past my second point. So this moves to our third point, which is thriving in a corrupt culture requires trusting God with our future. And this passage at the end of Daniel 9 um, is 
all about prophecy. It's all about the future. We will find some things in here that have been fulfilled literally in history, but we're going to find a piece of this that is, is yet to come. I'm going to read through it first, and then we're going to kind of go through and hit each of the major points. Um, and if we're lucky, I'll get you out of here by lunch. Okay. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are, decreed, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war, desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half a week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Man, lots there. Really confusing. Let's start with where Daniel starts. What does he mean 70 weeks? So the, the Hebrew word there, shabua, is, is, is like our word dozen. It simply means a set of seven. So like our word dozen means a set of 12. It could mean a dozen donuts. It could mean anything, right? This is a set of seven. So the question is, okay, we've got a set of seven, 70 sets of seven something. Um, I'm just going to fast forward and say we, we, we believe that to be years. And I'll give you two good reasons why. Number one is you'll see when we use that as years and look at its interpretation, we take the, the pieces of information that it starts about when it starts and when it ends, and you lay out the years, I think you're going to be blown away, because I know I was. And then second, and I love this piece, and so this is the accountant in me, but remember where this began, right? So why, were they, why was Daniel and Israel in captivity in Babylon for 70 years? It was because they failed to keep that Sabbath, right? That, that every seven years there was a Sabbath. Well, if they were paying back 70 Sabbath years. That means there was a total of 490 years or you know, seven seven-year periods in which they failed to keep that Sabbath. So you've got these 490 years when Israel failed to keep the Sabbath, and God says, I'm getting those Sabbath years back by putting you into Babylon, and I'm going to get those 70 Sabbath years back. So you're in captivity for seven years, 70 years. Now he's saying, look, you did wrong for 490 years. You just paid it for that in 70 years. So now I'm going to lay out for your future an additional 490 years. Numerology and scripture, very dangerous, slippery slope, but I really like that one. So I had to throw it in there. All right, going back to our rules of prophecy, who is this prophecy given to? So if you look back, um, the second half of verse 24 says, 70 weeks are decreed about whom? Says your people and your holy city. And I just realized I was so excited to get here, I skipped a piece of scripture. You should have called me out, Joe. All right. I'm really big on not skipping scripture because I think that that's how false teachers like get you to fall into their trap. So we're going to go ahead and jump back really quick. Shame on me. 
Daniel gets through the prayer, and I want you to look at verse 20. How quickly did God answer that prayer? Right? Um, so just laid his heart, out, his heart out before God, and he came back immediately. So back in verse 20, he says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God and the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer. So he's not even done with the prayer yet. It says, the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision, back in chapter 8, he'd, he'd encountered Gabriel. Joe taught on that last week. Um, he says, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, which again, I love, a little tidbit from God. They'd been out of, the, 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 out of Jerusalem and their, their country for 70 years. There's no temple in Babylon. There's no sacrifice in Babylon. But where's Daniel's head is still on spiritual things. He's saying, at the time of the evening sacrifice, even though they hadn't had an evening sacrifice for almost 70 years, he said, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have come now. I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore... Consider the word and understand the vision. So this vision, this prophecy that we are reading right now is God's immediate answer to the great prayer that Daniel gave. God was right there and it says he wasn't even done praying and Gabriel's there. And I almost pictured that Gabriel showing up. You know, Daniel's down, sackcloth and ash praying and Gabriel's like, okay, when's he going to be done? I got this great vision to give him. So he finishes, Gabriel's there, gives him this great vision. All right, bounce back with me down below. So 70 weeks, which we talked about. So who is this prayer or who is this vision given to? So 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So remember one of the rules of prophecy or studying prophecy that I gave you is you've got to understand and differentiate between Israel, the Gentiles, the church. Clearly... Gabriel here is saying, Daniel, this vision is decreed for your people and your city. So who were Daniel's people? Israelites. And what was Daniel's city? Jerusalem. So this prophecy specifically is being given to Israel and about Jerusalem. All right. Um, now, what, what is the purpose of these 70 weeks? So if you look... Um, verse 24, let's say the second half of verse 24, goes into six things. And they're kind of, they're split into two, two groups. The first three deal with the sin of Daniel's people. The second three deal with the righteousness of God. Now I will tell you, um, we could spend another whole Sunday just running through these six items. So I'm going to summarize them for us this morning. But Bible scholars, great Christians um, will disagree on whether these purposes have been fulfilled in history or are yet to be fulfilled in the future. Um, you know, some scholars spiritualize these things and they say, well, we can find their fulfillment in Jesus and the church, which again, it's, it's, it's an interesting interpretation, but I go back to who was, who was this prophecy given to? It was given to Israel and Jerusalem. So I, I, I have a hard time making that connection but even still, as you read through these six things, right, um, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint the most holy, 
I can, I can find some of those, but again, we're talking about the nation of Israel. And by and large, the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Their sin is still there. They, they have not, as a nation, accepted Christ. So generally speaking, I tend to see these as yet future and things that will be fulfilled in the period of the tribulation. But again, I would call this a rib issue, not a spine issue. Fun to debate, not fun to break fellowship over. Um, all right, so we've got these 490 years. Let's look at, okay, when, when, does this, when, do they, when does this 490 start? And then let's start looking at, okay, how does this play out? So it says, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. Stop. So if we look back in history, there have been a series of decrees given by people that had had, had Israel in captivity um, where they allowed Israel to go back to the homeland and either rebuild their temple or rebuild their city. Um, actually, the ESV Bible, any of you use the ESV Bible? ESV Bible has a great chart. I actually have the page number listed here. Page 1608, great chart. Um, if you don't have the ESV Bible, you can go to esv.org. It's free. One of the charts is there, really cool. And uh, you can grab that. So it kind of lays out some of these interpretations, but I'll, I'll hit them really high level. Um, the other two, so there's three main decrees that we can look at. Um, two of them really dealt specifically with going back to rebuild the temple itself, um, whereas this actually is talking about going back to restore Jerusalem as a city. Um, and so I think generally I will line, or land on uh, Nehemiah 2 when King Artaxerxes in about 444 BC allowed the Israelites to go back and build their city. Um, so that's, that's where I find the beginning again. Some debate among good God-fearing Christians, again, spine issue, but I land on 444 B.C. and Nehemiah 2. So that's the beginning. Well, then that lays out this great timeline. It says there's 490 years, right? So let's, let's see what happens. Well, it talks about seven sevens, right? So a, a, a set of weeks and then 62 weeks. So if you look at that in total, that's about four, not about, that's exactly 483 years. So if we start that at that 444 B.C., and I think there's a chart, there's the next chart, there we go, hopefully you can see this, um, and you do the math and you run this all the way forward, I will tell you, those 483 years will land at Christ's crucifixion. And if you look at verse 26, the first part of it, it says, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So I see that as being the crucifixion of our Lord in roughly 33 AD. Now, for those of you out there who are really, really like mathematicians, you love the math, and you're going to look at this and you're going to say, wait a second, 444 BC to 33 AD, well, that's only 476 years on the Gregorian calendar. So what was the Jewish calendar? Anybody know? Jewish calendar, 360 days in a year. So I'm not going to bore you with the math because, believe me, I geeked out and was super loving this. But if you go back and you do the math, all right, and you do the Gregorian calendar, and then, well, let's start with the easy one. 483 times 360 days is a total of 173,880 days, all right? If you convert that to the Gregorian calendar, you've got to account for things like leap years, the extra five days a year, and then account for the fact that Nehemiah actually gives us the date in the month of Nisan, 
which is a date in March. And then if you account for a difference in days in the March, there's another 24 days there, and you basically get to the same number. Pretty cool stuff. I'll just step back and say, I, I think that's a pretty exact fulfillment of the prophecy here for 483 years. Mind blown. Um, you know, God works that way. Shouldn't have our mind blown. I know a lot of the world will look at that and go, oh, that can't be scripture. Then somebody made that up. They must have written that afterwards, right? No, God does some pretty, pretty amazing things. Um, and, and, th and these are cool, um, but as I'm going to say later, it's dangerous to get too wrapped up and start focusing on this because then we start forgetting about making disciples and loving people. So just remember, this is cool. It helps prove that God is sovereign and in control, but we, we can't live here um, as much as I like to sometimes. Um, all right, so now what? Um, so then what happens? We got 483 years, right? How many years were decreed for Israel and God's people? 490. So we're missing seven years. Where the heck are these seven years? What's going on? Um, well, let's keep reading. Second half of verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So two things happen. It talks about the destruction of the city and the sanctuary. Um, it talks about a prince who is to come. So these things have to happen. It says, so after the 483 years, basically the, the city and the sanctuary, the temple, were going to be destroyed. I look at that and I say, well, that, that, that can't happen overnight. So it's, that's not going to happen on like one day and then the next seven-year period can start immediately. So I think about that. Um, as you look back in history, we find that in 70 AD, Rome under Titus came in and completely leveled the temple. Um, so as I look back, which is really not fair to Daniel because he didn't have the perspective that we have, as I look back, I can see the historical fulfillment of this piece of it in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, the prince who is to come... Um, Joe talked about this last week. It's been mentioned seven, or several times in the book of Daniel. I believe this to be the Antichrist, who is yet future, which we'll read about um, in verse 27. Um, but it says the people, where, where is it at? The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. When, when you look back at 70 AD, as I mentioned, it was Rome. Um, I think that gives us a, a clue as to the Antichrist being come out of eventually a restored and revived Roman Empire. I believe that that's what that reference is referring to. Um, and so as you look at verse 26 in its entirety, um, I believe that it has been fulfilled literally in history. One quick note, it does say the word flood there. When you look at the Hebrew word, it doesn't necessarily mean a literal deluge of water. It's just talking about a massive overflowing of destruction. When you think about even Jesus in Matthew 24, when he was talking about the future des desolation or de desecration of the temple, said that there would not be one, stern, one stone left unturned. Um, so the temple completely destroyed. Um, in this case, I think the flood is just talking about the complete destruction uh, of it. Um, all right, but we're still missing another seven. Um, so if you look, verse 27, I need to see how I'm doing on time, probably way over. Um, I'm going to wrap this up quickly. Um, verse 27, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. 
So here we have our last seven weeks. I believe this to be yet future. Um, Seven-year tribulation period that we've talked about. Um, a, lot of, a, a lot of Bible scholars have trouble with the break. So why, why would God put a break here? I'll, I'll throw a few reasons out for you. Number one, as I talked about, to allow the passage of time to finish what was predicted in, in verse 26 for the temple to be destroyed. Um, if you look back, secondly, at the, the 70 sabbatical years, Israel was in captivity for about 1,400 years total. So there were only 490 of those 1,400 years when they failed to keep that Sabbath year. So again, I don't believe those, the original 490s that got to the 70 years of, of captivity were sequential. So it stands to reason that these 490 years wouldn't need to be sequential. Probably one of the biggest reasons is the, the Bible clearly talks about the church age, which is what we're in right now, um, for those outside of Israel to be grafted in. So that the break in time allows for the church age. Um, and look, I'll, I'll say, God is not done with Israel. There are still prophecies in Scripture that have not been fulfilled for the nation Israel. And uh, I believe God is, is, is a God of His Word, and, and those things will happen, and so that provides for this future period. Um, and then again, simply, I think we've seen the literal fulfillment of the 69 years. We haven't necessarily seen the literal fulfillment of that last seven years, so that suggests it's, it's yet future. All right, so I'll wrap this up quickly. In summary, I, I believe that the, the, the sound, literal interpretation of Scripture in Daniel 9 and, and other supporting passages will lead to an understanding that the 70th week um, is, is yet future, largely because of Israel's rejection of our Messiah and then the allowance for this church age. But I'll say again, this is not um, a spine issue. It's a rib issue. Um, and, and while it might be intellectually stimulating to dive into the depths and to debate all of these things, I want to point out that if you look back at our chapter, what's the main focus? Just by volume. Almost two-thirds of the chapter is prayer. It's only that last third or, or fourth that's prophecy. So I, 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 think, I think we should take that to heart. Prophecy is important but it is not a substitute for prayer, and it's not a substitute for making disciples, for loving, for, for keeping the great commission and the great commandment. Those are the things that are clear. Those are the clear instructions that God has given us. And I think as a church, it's in our name, Mission View. That's what we want to be about. That's where we want to be spending our time and focus. Again, this is fun. It helps highlight the greatness of God and that God is sovereign and in control. But, but what should that drive us to do? That should drive us to leave this place, spread his love, tell others about this great and powerful God, how much he loves them, and what he has done for each of us. And that's really all God is asking us to do as we make disciples, to give your testimony. It's really, what have I seen? What have I heard? What do I know to be true about God? And that is the best testimony that you can give to anybody that you come in contact with. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. I thank you that um, your word can be intellectually stimulating, that we see your power in numbers and prophecy. And uh, thank you so much that you've brought us here, that you're taking us through this, Father. But most of all, Father, I pray that as we leave this place this morning, that you would help us to put your love into action. Lord, that you would help us each to carry out 
uh, the mission that you've given each of us to use the gifts that you've given each of us as we leave this place this morning. Father, and we'll give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.